Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. But Russian missiles in the Ukraine were turned on. They were put into a, a situation where they could have been launched beyond the ability of the, of the launch commander to stop them. So all, all this information really kind of compounds the fact that not only were, you know, Navy pilots seeing this, but the fact that these UAP, for whatever reasons, are either sending a message or doing something to the nuclear assets of the United States. And that is a big national security issue. Did you know you can now stream episodes of this podcast on your mobile device? All you need is my Conspiracy Unlimited app. It's absolutely free, and it's available for both iOS and Android devices. If you're a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member, pay attention. You can now stream premium content from your mobile device. My free Conspiracy Unlimited app for iOS and Android. Available from the App Store and Google Play. Get yours today and start streaming Conspiracy Unlimited on your mobile device. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to the program. And uh, just uh, by way of a warning, you may hear occasionally the sound of frozen puck hitting the boards. We have a hockey rink in the backyard and uh, my two boys, Zach and North, are out there enjoying a little two-on-two hockey with their uh, uncle David, my older brother, and uh, my nephew, Brandon, who came in for Brantford for the uh, the two-on-two tournament. I don't know if there's a nicer sound, a more evocative sound that really speaks to what it is to be Canadian than the sound of a frozen puck hitting the end boards or maybe a sharpened hockey skate blades on uh, freshly shoveled ice. Maybe the, I don't know, the, the sound of a distant lonely loon on a cottage lake it would be right up there as well. However, it is uh, hockey season up here in the Great White North. Over the next hour, we're going to uh, discuss uh, really the year that was in UFO disclosure and Victor Vigiani a good friend of the program who makes frequent appearances here and from time to time, uh, even guest hosts, will talk about the year that was in UFO ET disclosure. And uh, Victor, welcome to the program. Once again, Richard, it's a great pleasure to be with you. It's really been a wild past year in 2021. and It's just been absolutely incredible and it, it won't be something that will ever be repeated again until something really, really bigger happens. And I can almost predict that something really, really bizarre is about to happen, but we can get into that later on. And I do congratulate your boys for playing hockey out in the back there. That's something that I love to do. We had our own rink out in the back of our, our home uh, in Toronto. So I know exactly the feeling you're talking about. The sharpening of the blades and the and the, the pucks and the no, it didn't go in. Oh, yes, it did go in. That's <laughs> all part of being Canadian. You're it right. is indeed. I just hope they don't lose any teeth. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yes. So uh, before we get rolling, tell people how they can follow you, your blog, uh, Zeland Communications. Hey, really, uh, it's just a, a simple matter of uh, Googling Zeland Communications. And uh, the, the, the URL is a pretty simple one once you get there. And once you arrive at the platform at Zeland Communications, 
publications. It's uh, a series of editorials, press releases, announcements, media alerts about the current state of the uh, the UFO situation or UAP situation. And recently, I've posted um, uh, several several articles and media releases regarding the things that have happened just recently and even the ones in the past. So uh, I invite people to go to Zealand Communications and, and uh, have a look at all the stuff there. We've had an incredible number of reads on it, uh, well over 280,000 uh, over the last, uh, I'd say, about eight months. So people are really plugging into it and finding out what's going on. And I try to distill it uh, to the best I can, Richard, uh, for people who are not necessarily aware of or totally knowledgeable about all the intricacies of of the UAP phenomenon. Uh, I could write it for people who know about it, but that would be sort of redundant. I I try to uh, uh, target or at least educate people who don't really know things about this issue, but want to know more. So that's how I frame most of the media releases and the the editorials that I I do write. So in order to understand what happened in 2021 vis-a-vis UFO ET disclosure, we have to go back to 2017, which is uh, December of 2017, and the New York Mm -hmm. Times article, which has sort of quickly uh, established itself almost as a legendary date in history, like a high watermark for right up there with perhaps, you know, Roswell and uh, the Phoenix Lights. And now people uh, go to uh, December. December 17th, I believe it was, uh, 2017 in the New York Times. So take us back and uh, tell us about yeah. that article. Yeah, that you've, you've pinpointed a very uh, crucial point in history. Um, on, on some of the, the, the interviews that I've done, Richard, I, I use a biblical reference with respect to the year 2017 and what the New York Times did with Blumenthal, uh, Leslie Kane, and uh, Helena Cooper. Uh, the year 2017 for me is a cutoff point, like in the Bible, the, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Everything that happened before 2017 essentially was um, non-evidential or really not that provocative. So I, I would call that, I do call that the, the Old Testament of, of ufology, so to speak. But then all of a sudden, 2017 hit and the the um, the New Testament uh, of ufology began to be written. And that was the key point. That article by Blumenthal, uh, Kane, and Cooper really set the stage for a total and complete unraveling of uh, what the government uh, was willing to not admit necessarily, it's not the right word really, but to concede that they knew about, okay? And after a series of, of um, I guess, interventions by the U.S. Navy, all of that began to unfold. And with respect to things like the senatorial briefings that the Navy held with a number of senators and congressmen, these were all classified briefings. And the senators and congressmen or congresspeople uh, left that meeting asking huge questions about what this UAP UFO issue was all about. So that's part of how this whole New Testament began to unfold. And that article was definitely the pivotal point and how everything completely changed about the UAP issue. And after that, uh, you know, Senator uh, Rubio, who at the time, uh, Marco Rubio was chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee with his co-chair, Mark Warner, uh, they got into the uh, the National um, uh, Defense Act 
somehow they inserted language about UAP. And the, this act, this fiscal act, 2021, was essentially just a budget issue. So they, they dole out money to the intelligence community, to the, to the Air Force and to the Army, and it's all a budgetary thing. But somehow at the very, very end or towards the end, they inserted language, uh, three and a half pages about UAP and what they were going to demand that the director of national intelligence investigate with respect to the UAP issue. And this was unheard of this. Yeah. Before we get get to that and we'll, we'll, Mm -hmm. um, we'll, we'll get there shortly, but I do want to just go back to that 2017 article because there are people because of that article who have sort Mm -hmm. of jumped on board and are now very keenly uh, aware and interested in, in what's happening Mm-hmm. regarding the UAP uh, phenomenon. But just to go back to what that 2017 article was revealing, this existence of the ATIP investigation right. by the Pentagon. So just talk to yeah. me a little bit about what ATIP about is all about. Well, the ATIP program, the Advanced Aerial Threat Program, was a program that was instituted by a funding mechanism brought in by Senator Harry Reid, well, I guess it was just before 2007, probably 2004 or five. And somehow he managed to get $22 million allocated to an investigation of the UAP issue. And he sent this money to, uh, to the Pentagon and the Pentagon established this, uh, this ATIP program. And it was uh, a, a classified program. No one knew what was going on. It ran from 2007 to 2012. And Harry Reid was instrumental in getting this thing going. And as a result of the ATIP program, people like Luis Elizondo and the people in the Pentagon at the time, they operated in a classified manner in the, in the bowels of the Pentagon, what they called the C-ring down, down below, uh, you know, the main floor of the Pentagon. And they investigated everything about the UAP that had never been investigated before. And they came up with a, an amazing amount of data regarding the reality of what pilots, uh, both military and commercial, were seeing in the sky, what the um, Air Force and the Navy and the Army knew about all of these things, but were keeping hidden. So this ATIP program was investigating uh, the UAP issue from a threat scenario platform. And that's an important to understand because this is the way the Pentagon operates. This is not something that's going to be done to, you know, be revelatory about the UAP issue so that everyone can find out about it. They investigated UAP on the basis of what kind of threat did this bring to uh, the national security of the United States? And that's why it really gained a lot of importance because it's a threat scenario. Now, you and I know there's more to the UAP issue than just a threat scenario. But that's the basis of the foundation upon which this ATIP program was was founded. It would have remained hidden, I would presume, unless mm-hmm. it hadn't been for Luis Elizondo, who was running the program, right. which is what precipitated the 2017 article. He went to Leslie Kane and mm-hmm. Lana Cooper and, and Ralph Blumenthal, I guess mainly, uh, initially, Leslie Kane, to reveal the existence of this program. Because why? Well, what happened was the Pentagon wanted to go in a certain direction with the investigation, and that investigation would would further complicate or subvert or sequester the information that they, in fact, did get. So they had a huge amount of data. And I think that's the pivotal point uh, of of your question in that Luis Elizondo saw all this information uh, with all the people that he was working with and wanted to make sure that this information got to uh, the legislatures. 
you know, to legislating people like Marco Rubio. He wanted this stuff to be more accessible and more transparent. That's a key phrase that he uses all the time. He wants this issue to be more transparent for the American public. And he ran up against a brick wall and they would not, uh, the Pentagon would not release any of this stuff to the legislation or uh, to, to the people in the legislatures so that it would be something that would be staying within the Pentagon. So as a result of that, he resigned. He said, no, I, I'm not going to go forward with this anymore. I, I, I don't want to work on this, this particular program anymore. So he resigned from it and became sort of a, an outlier on this kind of thing. So he, he was someone who stood up for uh, the kinds of things that people need to know about and become transparent. And the Pentagon was just not willing to do it. Now, as a result of that, uh, the Pentagon did do a lot. Uh, an individual, uh, a spokesperson for the Pentagon, Susan Goff, uh, put out some information uh, questioning Elizondo's even, uh, you know, um, participation in the whole program, whereby he was the executive director and the security, the chief security officer for the ATIP program. And she published things that, uh, you know, uh, contradicted all of that. In fact, Luis Elizondo had no part in the ATIP program at all. And that was a basic lie that the Pentagon put out. Right. And as a result, he, he erase, of that, erase yeah. his history, I guess, the way yeah. that's, yeah. that uh, Area 51 tried to do with Bob Lazar. That's a very good, that's a very good example. It's a very good parallel. De- definitely, Richard. So as a result of him coming forward, the article coming out in December of 2017, um, we, I think a lot of us thought at that point things would really take off. And then there were a couple of follow-up articles, I think maybe a commentary in the New York Times, maybe a, a week or two after that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was the release um, of the, um, the, the uh, gun camera video from 2004, which has, been, has, been, has become known right. as the Tic Tac UFO incident. This was uh, a fighter group attached to the USS Nimitz, I believe, that's right. off yeah, the that's coast right. of San mm-hmm. Diego. Mm-hmm. Uh, they caught on radar and on, uh, on their gun video, these, uh, these Tic Tac shaped craft that were just doing incredible uh, speeds. And you hear the voices of the pilots aboard these uh, fighter craft or fighter planes just, um, you know, absolutely blown away by what these, these uh, craft are doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so how did we get from that to the Senate Intelligence Committee you referenced earlier with Marco Rubio uh, demanding that the U.S. intelligence agency and the Defense Department start compiling this detailed public analysis of all the data that they're collecting on on uh, UFOs or UAPs? Well, I think the floodgates open, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, um, before we went back to the article in 2017. What happened was uh, the Senate Intelligence Committee, uh, and for, for what reasons we don't know, and at the time that the, the Senate Intelligence Committee was operating, um, it, Marco Rubio, a Republican, was the chair of that committee. And this is a very, very powerful and influential committee. And at the time, Mark Warner was the co-chair. And when they developed the um, the actual um, uh, Senate budgetary allocation for the year 2021, which gives money to all of the agencies, intelligence and military throughout the United States, uh, as I said earlier, they injected language demanding that the director of national intelligence, uh, Avril Haynes at the time, uh, re- 
begin an investigation about the UAP issue. And if you read the, the, the actual legislation, it's, it's quite lengthy and with all kinds of specific things that they wanted the director of national intelligence to do with respect to UAP. Develop, uh, you know, databases, you know, what are pilots saying? What kind of threat does it pose to the United States national security? You know, where are these things uh, flying? Uh, what, what kinds of effects that it's having on, on, on radar? All, a whole litany of things that this act uh, prescribed. Uh, for the director of national intelligence. Now, it's important to understand that this is not something that's a suggestion. It was a demand, a requirement that the director of national intelligence do this within this particular act. And this act gets all formulated. It gets all kind of set up. It's, you know, a hundred and some odd pages. And then it goes onto the desk of the president of the United States to be signed, which in fact it was. So that's how it got into place that the director of national intelligence um, began this investigation. And as a result, um, the committee demanded from the director of national intelligence that they report back within, I think it was 180 days. And that's when this June 25th report by the director of national intelligence came out, which was purported to be and hoped to be a bombshell. Uh, it wasn't quite the bombshell that, um, that we expected, but it was an admission that since 2004, all of the things, the, the litany of things you just talked about earlier, you know, with the Tic Tac videos and all the other sightings that went along with that from 2004 up to the present time, uh, be characterized within this particular report from the Director of National Intelligence. And uh, they, they laid it all out and they said there was something like 144 incidents and there's only two or three that were completely unexplained. And that uh, we, but we still had questions about what these UAP were. But in that particular report, they stated that this stuff was in fact real. And then they went on to say, well, it could be, you know, foreign intelligence, uh, foreign military, uh, weather anomalies. And they really didn't allude to the fact that that might be of off world, uh, origin. So they, they, they crept a little bit closer. But they did acknowledge, they did acknowledge and say they're not ours, right? Well, that's the key thing. Yeah. That, that was what the pilots were saying. Uh, a lot of the pilots have gone public and on 60 minutes, I think that same year that two of the pilots exactly said exactly that these things are not ours. So that report in a sense was a bombshell, but then again, uh, it did not satisfy the, the UAP research community and saying, well, a lot happened before 2004. What about Roswell? What about the Phoenix lights? What about uh, the planes of St. Augustine and all of the other, you know, military sightings around the world? So the report was rather myopic in its in its approach because it really didn't consider a lot of the global uh, sighting reports that had come in by droves, and that's typical of the United States uh, American you know intelligence agencies. They look at it from just their, their their pinhole view of it with respect to the United States. They didn't really consider the global aspects of, of how these you know things were coming and going uh, within all of the, the military communities throughout the globe. Are you convinced though I, I, the pilots? you know, say that they, they are not ours and ours, I mean, mm. U S defense, uh, you know, black projects, I suppose we'd call them. Mm. Um, but they wouldn't necessarily, wouldn't necessarily know. Should we take not only their word on face value, but even, even top officials at the Pentagon, when they say they're not ours, should we necessarily believe them? 
Well, uh, I, I wouldn't um, I wouldn't take the the word of the the intelligence community that they're the are or they are not are whatever the intelligence community and the military community within the United States of America says has to be taken with a very large bag of salt. Uh, it it really uh, it's in their interest not to say anything about this issue with respect to it being off world uh, of off world origin. It's in their interest not to say that, and I can understand that. There are lots of reasons why um, they are not prepared to talk about it. And I can understand it. I don't I have I really have no real qualms uh, with them doing it that way. But when you look at some of the or listen to some of the testimony, both, uh, you know, tape recorded testimony with them on air, on television, on 60 Minutes, and even within their own videos, you can hear them talking about it, as as you mentioned. Uh, There's no question that these pilots they're pretty experienced people. They've seen things that, that you know, you and I would, couldn't even ever dream of in the sky with respect to their own uh, technology, with respect to foreign technology. They've, they've pretty much seen it all. There's not a whole lot that, that could surprise them. But when you take a look at David Fravor, one of the main pilots who did um, actually see these things, and it literally flew, you know, feet uh, by his wingtips. Okay, when when he went, whoa, look at that. Now, he was completely blown away by it. Uh, he, he stated that this thing was at 50 feet above the ocean in the Pacific Ocean. And then within less than a second, it went to 85,000 feet. Now, if you're a pilot who's seen it all, sees that, uh, I would put that down to firsthand testimony that this stuff would convince him that this is not something of a technology that he knew of as a pilot and that ostensibly could never be anything that would be uh, originating here on the earth. That would be his impression. So I would take uh, the, the pilot's word that this stuff is not, is not uh, ours. It doesn't originate from here. So there, there's a real fine line between what the Pentagon says and what the pilots say. The, the, the pilots were the firsthand witnesses and they saw some incredible things. We'll take a time out, come back and uh, discuss UFO Disclosure 2021, the year that was. Back with more of our conversation right after these. Check out the huge selection of Strange Planet merchandise in my online shop. Go to strangeplanet.ca and click on Shop in the menu or find the link in the episode notes for this podcast. At my Strange Planet shop, you'll find unique men's, women's, unisex t-shirts and athletic shirts, leggings, tote bags, mugs, neck gaiters, and stickers and more, all emblazoned with amazing artwork designed exclusively for my Strange Planet shop by artist-illustrator Rick Forgus. If you're a fan of Strange Planet, why not show it off? Go to strangeplanet.ca and click on shop or go to the episode notes for this podcast and click on the link. It's a strange planet. Dress for it. As you're staring up at the night sky, ever wonder who's staring back? No, me either. But I guess you better say it because of Richard, you know, he's all wrapped up in this stuff. (laughs) Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Canadian UFO ET disclosure advocate, UFO researcher, Victor Vigiani is with us from Zeland Communications, and uh, we're talking about the year in disclosure, 2021. Um, why do you suppose Senator Mark Rubio and uh, the other gentleman, Warren, uh, why they were so insistent on inserting such strong language into this 
um, this piece of legislation that came out of the Senate Intelligence Committee? Right. Uh, That's a great question. Uh, I think we have to go back to um, uh, Senator Mark Warner, the co-chair at the time of the Senate Intelligence Committee. He was um, just after he got out of one of the briefings uh, from the Navy intelligence people. Uh, he said, there's a lot of questions that we have. And in that that briefing, and I don't know exactly how many senators or congressmen uh, were in that meeting. I know Rubio was there. Mark Warner was there. There could have been a plethora of, of other, you know, uh, Senate and, and um, House of Representatives in, in that room. I have no idea how many there were. But the fact of the matter is that was a classified briefing. And uh, from what I understand people came out of that meeting shaking their head uh, and they were, you know, obviously, uh, you know, under some sort of oath or some sort of restrictions about regarding uh, or telling about anything that they heard from the Navy at the time. And the Navy told them things that uh, these 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 legislatures um, people have never heard before. So I think that particular hearing, if this is my assessment of it, Richard, is that particular classified uh, hearing or briefing uh, awoken Rubio and Mark Warner. And as soon as they found out that this kind of information was out there, uh, they took a step. Uh, you know, Rubio was the chair of the committee at the time and Warner. They decided to try to find out more about this. And what better way could they do it than to inject a demand or a requirement in the uh, in the national budget for the nineteen for the two thousand twenty one fiscal year? So, in order for them to transfer all of this money to all of these agencies, they also put in a requirement for the director of national intelligence to investigate UAP. What better way could they do it than in a piece of legislation, rather than coming out and you know doing a separate piece of legislation, doing something on their own as a committee? Uh, they felt that for whatever reasons, it would be best to insert this language within a committee um, uh, piece of legislation, have it go forward to the president, have it signed by the president, which is done every year. This, this, this National Intelligence Act is done every year. It's a budgetary thing that has to happen. So when the president puts his, you know, his, his imprimatur on it, when he signs it, it has to go forward and it has to be quote, quote unquote obeyed. So what better way could they find out what this UAP situation was all about, but to demand that the director of national intelligence investigate the UAP stuff. And they knew they had as much information that they needed to actually go forward with it. So it wasn't just something, you know, tell us something that you don't know. We already know what this stuff is, but we want more data on it. We want the director of national intelligence to give us every piece of data that you had, not be selective about it but every piece of data that you had. So they had a perfect conduit. This, this act was, you know, written in stone. So that's my estimation as to how it originated from the Navy briefing. And they came out of that saying, we need to be more transparent about that. And then the rest of the, the story comes out that, uh, you know, after the election, Warner became the, the uh, Mark Warner became the chair of the committee and Rubio became the co-chair. And then things just went on from there. And we can talk about that in a few minutes too, if you want. Sure. Well, Bring us up to speed. I mean, after so that that was in June, uh, we had the June of 2021. We had the release of this preliminary assessment of unidentified mm-hmm. aerial phenomena, and as you say, that was a, a big disappointment. Uh, it only went back to 2004 in terms of UAP reports. Um, has anything further come out? I mean, w- w- we have we seen any. 
um, any additional uh, video evidence, for example, from the Navy, any additional uh, pilots from or any additional uh, reports from Navy pilots that that uh, come after 2004. Everything seems to go back only as 2004. In other words, you know, mm-hmm. what have you done for me lately? What, what, what do we what do we see more recently? Well, the what has happened to, to, to my understanding, uh, there were three separate videos, three separate, very, very key videos that came out. And um, I interviewed uh, Luis Elizondo and I asked him, you know, the, the question that you asked me, are there more videos about the, this stuff? He said he said to me, he said, yes, there are. There are many, many more. He didn't say how many. But in fact, there were more videos of this stuff uh, going on, not just um, in uh, in the Pacific Ocean uh, near Catalina Island and, and the Nimitz and all that, but definitely off the coast of Florida. So there were, in fact, other things. Now, from that information, we can we can kind of surmise that the the, the United States Navy had a whole lot of stuff in its back pocket about this the, this information, and as a result of that. Uh, several several things happened. The first thing that happened was that, that I could put a bookmark on, which was sort of additional to all of the uh, the, the videos, was a press conference that was held by Robert Salas uh, in Washington, D.C., and that was on October 19th. And he brought forward all of the UAP information that he had, along with other um, military people, military uh, whistleblowers, about the nuclear um, shutdown issue. That it happened back in, in the 1960s and is, and has happened many, many times since. So he brought forward this, this information. And this was another kind of bombshell that came out. It, it, it really kind of pushed forward the idea that these UAP were not just flying around our ships or over the ocean, uh, and also to underwater. That's something that we talk about later too. You know, they're, they, they go into the water and come out of the water at huge speeds. But the fact of the matter was that Bob Salas, Captain Bob Salas, who was a, um, a military person, a launch commander at uh, Malmstrom Air Force Base who witnessed this kind of stuff, gave credence with all the people that he brought forward to the press conference to the fact that these UAP were not only flying around our ships, but they were hovering over military nuclear installations and shutting the missiles down. And this went on and on. Uh, Bob's situation was such that it 12 uh, missiles at his at his site at Malmstrom were shut down for a period of time while this, this red orange blob hovered over the uh, over the over the, uh, uh, the, the the launch site. And he brought this information all forward, giving credence to the fact that not only has the United States gone through this, but it becomes a global issue because Russia has also had this kind of thing happen to them, not with being shut down, but Russian missiles in the Ukraine at the time outside the Ukraine were turned on. They were put into a, a situation where they could have been launched uh, beyond the ability of the, of the launch commander to stop them. So all, all this information really kind of compounds the fact that not only were, you know, Navy pilots seeing this, but the fact that these UAP, for whatever reasons, are either sending a message or doing something to the uh, nuclear assets of the United States. And that is a big national security issue. So all of these things, it's like bread and butter sandwich with, you know, ham and cheese. And, and you just keep on adding all of your fillings to the sandwich and it kept on building. And Robert Salas's press conference was one of these things that really brought it forward in, in, in a really vibrant way. These uh, incursions, Going back mm-hmm. to the uh, 1960s over Minot and Melmstrom uh, nuclear bases, uh, would they then also 
be subject to analysis and investigation under this, you know, new new wording that was infused into the Intel Authorization Act for for 2021. In other words, I mean, we hear about those things um, in book form from people like Bob Salas, but will we get under the Intel Authorization Act, um, will we get acknowledgement from the Pentagon about those nuclear incursions? Yeah, that's another good question. Uh, What's happened since then with respect to legislation is um, uh, Senator uh, Kristen, um, Kristen Gillibrand, who's a, a member of the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee, put forward an amendment um, regarding uh, the initial act. So what she did, she added on information within the act uh, to delve more deeply into this. And what her act was prescribing was not only did she want to, um, you know, tack on an amendment that dealt with UAP sightings and, and uh, interactions with, with pilots. She also wanted to put in uh, language which spoke about things like uh, why are these things coming out of or going into the water? Uh, transmit what they she called transmedium objects coming in and out of water at great speeds. How can any of our or do we have any technology that that represents that kind of that kind of flight? So that's an, that's one thing that she wants to add or she did add to the uh, to the uh, initial act. The second thing that she added to that was that um, she found out through whatever means maybe she was in at the briefing. I don't. No, but some of these pilots were undergoing severe um, effects, uh, electromagnetic effects of being close to these objects, you know, burns. And they've even got uh, some sort of um, indication that their brainwave activity was affected by being close to these objects. So uh, she inserted uh, part of the, the legislation, talked about investigating the physical effects on pilots. And the other, um, the other thing that she did insert was that we need to find out where these things are going to affect and influence our nuclear assets. So that will also become part of what the director of national intelligence is, is required to do. So there's a whole kind of umbrella there that looks at the nuclear incident, uh, the, the physical effect on pilots, uh, and, and also the, this transmedium uh, capability of these of these craft to go in and out of water uh, at, at huge speeds. When Luis Elizondo came forward and started doing started doing the rounds on media, and people started digging into his background and found, I believe, there was some. CIA connections in Central America and people started to raise red flags. Ah, this is all a disinformation campaign. Uh, where are you with all of that right now? Well, you know, I go back to, um, first of all, how he was assigned to the position and how um, the ATIP program came into being. And he was assigned to that because he was a former intelligence agent. And what better kind of uh, you know leadership could uh, could the Pentagon ask for? So uh, he was in the program for a number of years and did a lot of things to uh, to bring things to light. And in, in my discussions with him uh, during two interviews, it's quite clear that uh, he was all over this thing. And uh, you know, it, it, it's it's really interesting, Richard, because you know, as soon as you mention the CIA or any of the intelligence agencies and anyone associated with that. 
you know, a real blanket of, of doubt, you know, is thrown over just about everything that that person does. So you have to decide, you know, why is this person, first of all, why did that person become involved in it? He didn't, I don't think, and I know for a fact, really, he didn't really know what he was getting into. What he knew about UAP before that is, is subject to discussion. But someone like that who's been, uh, you know, uh, put in that position has to do their best to find out what's going on. And I think he did it with really good intentions. But then after he found out that the Pentagon was not going to become you know, transparent about this whole issue, he decided that he had to bail out. Now, why did he bail out? Uh, that, that, that to me is the, the pivotal point. He could have stayed with it and kept this stuff under wraps uh, with respect to the, what the Pentagon wanted to do. They wanted to keep this stuff sequestered. How they were going to do it, I, you know, who knows? But the fact of the matter that he did not want this stuff to remain hidden or to remain sequestered. So he quit. He just bailed out. And then he came forward with it. And he has been very, very cagey in all of his presentations to say, well, you know, I can't say this. I can't say that. And, you know, why you, you know, people would ask him, why are you being that sort of clandestine about it? Well, he didn't really know at the time all of the stuff that he could and could not disclose, classified and declassified stuff. So he never really spoke about, in, in my discussions, but or even publicly that I've seen him talk about, he's never spoken about the classified information. He's always talked about the declassified stuff. And so as soon as you become a person like that who has a bit of a, a public podium, you're going to get that kind of uh, blowback. Uh, anybody who wants to discredit uh, someone for coming out. You know, Susan Goff, as I mentioned earlier, was, was a key person in that. She did everything, not to just discredit what he said. Uh, she did a great job of discrediting him by saying that he was not the director of the program. He was not in, involved with the ATIP program, was a bald-faced lie. And as a result of that, he contacted uh, lawyer Danny Sheehan. And as uh, as Danny, as you and I know, Danny is, a, is someone who can dig down deep into something and come up with, with something very brazen. So what they did, Luis Elizondo, they uh, went to the inspector general's office and met with lawyers the first time in Washington, D.C., and they sat down with these lawyers, and Danny Sheehan said, listen, we want the gun, this, this person, Susan Goff, to stop telling lies about Luis Elizondo's participation in the ATIP program. And if you don't stop the lies, we're going to take serious le- legal action against you. And they realized quite clearly that this was not something uh, that, they could, that they could defend. So the lawyers, I don't know what the result of that first meeting was, and Danny told me that there was another meeting so in, in, in other words, they wanted to exonerate uh, Luis with respect to um, his participation in that program. So why would Luis Elizondo go to someone like Danny Sheehan and meet with the inspector general's lawyers and demand that he be exonerated from all of this uh, you know, r- rumor market that uh, Susan Goff was telling? So in, in my assessment, the reason Luis Elizondo, in my mind, has retained credibility is he's gone to one of the best uh, civil rights lawyers in, in the country and demanded that his, his, um, that his reputation be protected. So on that basis, I respect what Luis has done. He's really opened the doors in a lot of different ways for this. And, you know, with Chris Mellon, one of his associates, a former assistant director of national defense in the United States, the two of them have really brought this stuff to light. So I don't want to doubt his, his intentions. And they, both of them, Chris Mellon and Luis Elizondo, have played a major role in bringing this stuff forward. And without their testimony and without their initiative, we would not be nearly as far as we are right now. Maybe he's uh, became this lightning rod, much to the delight 
of the military. Maybe that was their whole purpose, just to cast doubt and to use up, uh, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of the air in the room about, you know, is he legit? Is he not legit? So it was a nice distraction. But I suspect that you, uh, like many other people, continue to have severe reservations or suspicions about uh, the, the Pentagon's intentions with with disclosure and to the extent that they want to control the narrative here. So, I mean, is are they using Lu- Luis Elizondo may be entirely credible, uh, but are they is he being used and manipulated, I guess, like mm-hmm. the rest of us? Yeah, you know, it's, it's as I said earlier, with respect to uh, in, in intelligence agencies you know, within the United States, they've always played their cards close to their vest, Richard, uh, you know, from the very beginning of this whole issue back in Roswell and all the way through the 50s and 60s and and through the uh, different administrations uh, that, have, that have come and gone. They've always played their their um, their cards very close to the vest. And it's interesting to, and very important to point out that. The Pentagon, the people in the Pentagon, they're not elected officials. They're, they're there, uh, for a certain reason. Uh, they're there. They're lifers. They're people who, you know, they may, you know, have a position for X number of years and then, um, they either retire or whatever, but they pass on all of the need to sequester, all of the need to keep this stuff secret onto people who succeed them. So that's the way they operate. That's, that's just a given. They're not like elected officials who want to shine lights on things to a certain degree. Uh, so that's the reason for the secrecy. And that's why it's been in place for so very, very long. But all of a sudden coming forward in 2017 with the, with the New York Times article, they got caught with their pants down. Okay. They realized, oh my goodness, the, the, the jig is up. You know, we, we've, we've, we've been, we've been de, de- cloaked uh, and people are trying to find out more and more about it and they actually know more and more about it and so what strategies could we put in place to kind of let the air out of the balloon a little bit so let's let Luis Elizondo do his thing uh, let uh, you know Chris Mellon do his thing uh, let uh, the, the To the Stars Academy do their things uh, with respect to disclosure and sort of let the air out of the balloon and let it sit where it is and all the while, not really understanding or having people understand that there's a certain legitimacy to all this information. So they just, they played their cards in the same way as they did before. They just didn't make any public commentary about it. They didn't do anything spectacular. They didn't hold any kind of news conferences to say, well, yes, the Two of the Stars Academy and all the people involved in all of that, the whole Putoffs and, and all the other people who have information, yes, they're all right. They didn't do that. So they kept on playing the scenario in exactly the same way, hoping that the strategic plans that they had in place, you know, pre-2017 could play into this whole scenario right now. And they say, well, okay, now we've got legislators involved. Now we've got the, you know, the director of national intelligence involved. So let's just let them play this thing out so that uh, however this information will come out, we can dampen it down by not saying anything. And that's the whole strategy of the Pentagon. They're not saying anything. Or when they do say something, it's so effusive and so untransparent that no, no one in the media is going to take it seriously. And that's why we're in a position right now, Richard, where the mainstream media is not really picking up on this. The NBCs, ABCs, uh, you know, BBC, globally, every, everywhere. They're not really picking up on this because the Pentagon is not saying anything specific. So using that uh, strategic kind of um, uh, open side 
silence, if I could use, you know, two, two kind of discrepant words, they're being silent, but they're also letting a little bit air out of the balloon, which makes in my mind that this thing could come to a point where the only thing that's going to stop the Pentagon from doing this is the, uh, the Gildebrand amendment eventually moving forward. And second of all, for open public hearings. That's the only way that this information is going to be slidden under the strategic plan of the Pentagon and come to light in the public realm. And open once congressional, open, you're talking about congressional hearings here. Exactly. Yes. Open congressional hearings, just like we're going through right now with, uh, uh, you know, that it's gone on in the past with Watergate and even with in the Trump era and all the investigations we're doing something similar to that. And, and, my, and do you think uh, that could happen this year in 2022? I Myself, I've had a, a conversation with Stephen Bassett about this, uh, actually two conversations. And he, he, he's a, of the opinion that this could happen as early as March of this year. And for a couple of reasons, first of all, because of the compelling evidence that is, is really, um, uh, you know, going to be literally blown out of the water. Call pilots for it. Call people, uh, subpoena people from the Pentagon. Gone. Uh, all the the, uh, the Rubios of the world and the, and the Mark Warner bring them forward to testify. They want to get this done as early as they can before any of the elections happen uh, later on in the year. And also, too, with with the investigations that are going forward with respect to the uh, um, uh, the committees are investigating investigating the the, 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 the January sixth event. So they want to get this stuff out into the public realm in prime time, so that uh, this. And information can come forward. And the National Intelligence Committee is filled with very, very good um, uh, people, both, uh, you know, legislators and also military people who can come forward and, and, and push this issue forward in a way that will literally expose the silence of the, of the Pentagon. But so the, this, that, that's, why, that's why I says it. So this uh, you mentioned Stephen Bassett, and he was, mm-hmm. I guess, one of the chief architects of the citizens uh, hearing. Right. In Washington, which was when? Was that 2014? 2013. 2013. In, in, so here we are yeah. now, nine years later. Would the, um, is it, do you suppose that the, an open congressional hearing on this issue in 2022, if it happens, would, would be, would mirror the, the citizens hearing that took place in 2013? In other words, the same types of witnesses would come forward. And also, would they have subpoena power? Well, I know that the uh, uh, whatever committee calls the hearing, that would be obviously the Senate Intelligence Committee that would call the the hearings, uh, the public hearings. Uh, they would, in fact, they do have subpoena power. Uh, now, the 2013 uh, mock hearing that Stephen Bassett held in Washington, D.C. at the National Press Club. Uh, I don't know if people have actually watched that. It would really behoove people to to um, to, to go to Steve's site and, and watch the, any number of clips on how all of the, the researchers were interviewed and the pilots were interviewed. I would sense an answer to your question. It, it would be very similar to that with even more specific um, uh, witnesses. I'm talking about pilots who've actually seen these things, the David Fravers of the world uh, and other pilots that went through this stuff, radar operators, uh, people from the FAA. Uh, people deep inside of, of of the of the naval intelligence, and that's something that I think is really going to become important because I have, and many people have believed for a number of years, as far back as 1969, that the first director of the CIA, Roscoe Admiral Roscoe Hillencotter, who called for open public hearings back in the in the late in the late 60s, he wanted open hearings. He knew what was going on behind the scenes. So the Navy has had their hand in this issue 
for for over 70 years. So I would not be at all surprised if if key Navy officials were not brought forward within any kind of public hearings that the Intelligence Committee would uh, would want to hold. So they'd be key people, in addition to people like, you know, Chris Mellon and, and Luis Elizondo and a number of other people. And even, uh, you know, having someone like the Director of National Intelligence come forward, Avril Haynes coming forward and be and being a witness, because what she did, uh, it's important to understand that at a um, at a public event that was held in Washington D.C. Um, at, at, at the uh, at a cathedral on November the tenth, uh, she was interviewed by uh, by the uh, the moderator, and she he actually t- he actually asked her about all of the situation about these foreign uh, originated uh, objects are they this are they that, and she said, "Well, we we're not just sure," and she actually uttered the word that these things could possibly be of extraterrestrial origin. So she's not ruling it out. So when has a director of national intelligence in the United States ever uttered the word extraterrestrial? So getting someone like that at a hearing, I think that the, uh, you know, the, the TV networks, ABC, NBC, and, and CBS would, would literally you know, drool at the mouth and having somebody like that come forward and actually given sworn testimony to the fact that these things may be of off-world origin. And that's where this is all going. 2022, we could be inching incrementally uh, towards the president of the United States, perhaps one day acknowledging formally the UAP reality. Uh, Victor, thank you so much. Happy New Year. And uh, we'll talk again soon. It's been a pleasure, Richard. And thanks a lot for the opportunity. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. <laughs>